0: Take your Bibles out this morning and let's uh, return to our Sunday morning series on the book of Revelation Uh, Just say no to religion Just say no to religion Uh, One of the more difficult messages and passages that we will look at throughout this uh, entire series uh, This chapter and the next one And uh, but I will say near the end of the message today some strong application points uh, for you and me. Revelation 17 John says then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me come I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk And he carried me away in the spirit uh, into a wilderness And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names And it had seven heads and ten horns When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth. But it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast." They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Father, we're so grateful that as we have journeyed through the book of Revelation, without question, we have seen your sovereign hand guiding in the affairs of men. Father, we thank you that as we talk about history, that it is your story. That things are not simply running out of control. Without any direction whatsoever In fact, just the very opposite is what we read in the Word of God That you are guiding things along To the fulfillment that you are bringing all things to Father, we pray this morning that you would give us understanding In what on the surface would appear to be a very difficult passage God, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds. Lord, that we would understand before it's said and done today the strong, strong application that Revelation 17 has to people today as we'll look at. Father, I pray that you would open hearts and minds today that if there is even one here who does not know Christ in a personal way, That your Holy Spirit would be at work in their lives That you would remove the veil from their eyes That they would see Jesus And come to faith in Him today God we are mindful of our folks being Literally scattered all over the place this morning And wherever they are We pray that you would watch over them Those involved in ministry Guide them Anoint them from above and use them for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1844, Karl Marx described religion as the opiate of the people. He viewed all religion as man-made and as a crutch. That helped people to escape the hardships of this world system by resting their hopes and confidence on something other than the world around them. Now Marx's solution was communism. An atheistic system that contained as much religious zeal as any religion that Marx himself criticized. Now, folks, regardless of distancing ourselves away from Marx and his philosophy, his assessment of religion as the opiate of the people could be said to be very accurate in one sense. People are incurably religious. Missionaries report to us that no matter how deep the jungles are that they enter into When they find isolated tribes and peoples Along with those tribes and peoples they also find altars and idols Christian apologists, those who defend the Christian faith make a good point here Uh, They say that this is one of the best evidences for the existence of God. This universal desire to worship a supernatural being is in and of itself evidence of a supernatural being. As they point out, wherever there is a natural desire, it is because there is a corresponding reality. For instance, there's hunger, the desire to eat, because there is the corresponding reality of food. If there were no such thing as food and the need to eat, then we can assume there would be no such desire as hunger. And so the fact that men everywhere in all periods of history and in all cultures, whether educated or uneducated, rich or poor, red, yellow, black or white, whether in remote areas disconnected from the rest of the world or in major population centers, The fact that men everywhere have this tremendous desire to worship God Is great evidence that there must be a God Augustine was right when uh, when he wrote "O God thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee Now folks the desire to worship is good It shows us that God has made us, God has created us with this God-shaped vacuum inside of us that nothing but a relationship with Him can satisfy. And so this desire to worship is very good. But it can also be corrupted. You see, men will worship someone or something. If not the true God, then men will worship false gods of their own making. One cannot help but think of Moses there on the mountain as he was receiving the Ten Commandments from God. While he was there up on the mountain, the people below felt like he was being detained too long and they felt like something had happened to him and perhaps Moses wasn't going to return to him. And so what did they do? They took off all of their gold earrings and their jewelry and they gave those to Aaron and they said, make for us a golden calf and Aaron did that and they bowed down and they worshipped that golden calf. They worshipped that idol. Satan no doubt uses man's desire to worship to his own advantage. He uses this as a chance To deceive men into worshiping the wrong thing. Now once we enter into the end times that we've been looking at since chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. Despite the fact that the true church has been taken out raptured out and saved from God's wrath to come, nonetheless, religion is surprisingly still going to be very much a part of unredeemed man's life. Chapter 17 is a testimony to that. Chapter 17 is about false religion, false faith. God has judged everything else and so now he is about to judge false religion. That's essentially what chapter 17 is all about. Now we meet a woman in this chapter. Women figure in very predominantly in the book of Revelation. In chapter 12 we see a wonderful lady. In chapter 12, that lady represents the nation of Israel and we know that according to the flesh, Jesus was a Jew. He came through Jewish lines. And we see that picture of Israel being described as a woman in chapter 12. And then in chapter 19, we're going to see another lady, a wonderful lady. The lady that we're going to be introduced to in chapter 19 is none other than the bride of Christ You and I are described as the bride of Christ Now in chapter 17 on the other hand we see a wicked woman She is the scarlet harlot She's the devil's mistress. She represents false religion. Commentator Robert Thomas writes, This woman represents all false religion of all time, including those who apostatize from the revealed religion of Christianity. What we see here is the fact that false religion will run its course and it will be judged and eventually destroyed by God. Now the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the mystery of Babylon. Representing false religion and we see that in the first six verses One of the seven angels pouring out the bowls comes up to John He's going to show John the judgment of this harlot Now what he shows John does not advance the narrative We could could really go from chapter 16 all the way to chapter 19 and not miss anything as far as the chronology in the narrative. But God puts chapters 17 and 18 in within the progression of the narrative, and they serve as a pause, a parenthesis, to show what is going to become of the world and the world's religion. Now, folks, over and over again in the Bible, we are told not to love the world nor the things of the world. I think of what John writes in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Love not the world nor the things of the world. For if any man loves the world and the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world... The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world and it is going to pass away. And so God begs of his people in the word of God that we would not have the wrong focus in life. That we would not spin our wheels and waste our life away worshiping or serving the wrong thing. Because God wants us to have a meaningful life that's lived in fellowship with him, worship of him, and service of him. And so we need to keep our focus right. Now when the Bible says that we're not supposed to love the world or the things of the world it's not talking about the people of the world because even John 3.16 says for God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son that is the people of the world and so we likewise are supposed to love the people of the world but it is the systems of the world, the philosophies of the world The greed and the corruption in the world that we are not to love. This world system is opposed to God. It is not going to last. It is not going to last. It is passing away and in chapter 17 and 18 we see that. In chapter 17 we see the world's religions coming to an end and then in chapter 18 we're going to see the world's commerce coming to an end you know it's so sad that some people are living their whole lives investing in something that will not last and how sad that's gonna be to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day And some people to learn, learn too late that they've invested all of their energy, all of their resources, all of their time in that which will not last. God is trying to spare us from that. Now there's a number of things that we need to see about this woman of Babylon First of all she sits on many waters What John is shown is a harlot on many waters Now in verse 15 we're told that the waters are symbolic Pointing to all peoples of the world And so what is pointed out here is that she has affected many peoples of the earth People all over the globe have had relations with her In verse 1, we're plainly told that this harlot is going to be judged. We're told that the kings of the earth have committed adultery with her. False religion is a worldwide thing. He's speaking here of spiritual adultery. Now, you'll remember the case of Hosea and Gomer in the Old Testament. God told Hosea to marry a wife who was a harlot, and that marriage was to serve as an illustration of how Israel had played the harlot with God and was unfaithful. Israel was described as God's wife, but Israel had been an adulterer. The people of Israel went after the gods of the peoples around them and committed spiritual adultery even though they were supposed to be married to God. And this is a charge against God's people that we see running throughout the whole Old Testament period. Israel was repeatedly described as an unfaithful wife. In Jeremiah 2, God asked the question... What happened to those days, those early days After I called you out of the land of Egypt You were betrothed to me You were a beautiful wife You were my bride And you followed me so faithfully But then you went astray And went after other lovers And the gods of the other nations And you worshipped them And you served them He goes on to say there My people have committed two evils They've rejected me, the source of true living waters, the fountain of true living waters And secondly, they've dug out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water So again, this is an analogy that we see running out uh, throughout the Bible The image that John describes here is a people, even at the very end of time, a people that are drunk with spiritual adultery. Just like Israel was guilty of spiritual adultery, so are the peoples of the earth all down through history. They've engaged in it to the point of being thoroughly steeped in it. They're inebriated. Again, false religion is a worldwide problem. And it's gnomic. It's timeless. It exists in every generation and in every place. It's just as Paul points out in Romans chapter 1. When men reject God's truth, what do they do? They turn to themselves. They make gods. They make idols of their own liking. And they follow the desires of their own heart. And they end up worshiping the creation rather than worship. The creator. Well this harlot representing false religion has blasphemous names on her. This is a play on how the ancient prostitutes would advertise who they were. By their dress and by words that they would put on their clothing. Especially the ancient Roman prostitutes they would wear headbands. And headdresses. And they would have words on their headdresses that described what type of women they were. They were advertising themselves for sale. This is a woman that has blasphemous names on her, revealing what false religion is to a holy God. It is blasphemous to him. Now in verse 4 you'll notice that this harlot is beautifully adorned. On the one hand she's very attractive. She is like a woman that looks nice. She's like a woman that a man would be attracted to as he looks at her. But that's not the whole picture because he goes on in verse 4 to describe the fact that this harlot is deadly. In her hands are abominations. She is spiritually deadly. Verse 5, John says this harlot has a name on her forehead. This name is a mystery, Babylon the Great. Now hang on to that because that's going to be very important in a moment. In verse 6, he says, this harlot has the blood of the saints on her hands. Now, who in the world is this woman? Now, without a doubt, again, I believe what's being communicated here is that this scarlet harlot is none other than false religion that has existed in every generation. Now, why is she called Babylon? Well, that's a symbolic name. Babylon has factored so much into false faith in the Bible beginning all the way back in Genesis 3 at the Tower of Babel an area that was later to become Babylon men tried to make a name for themselves they worshipped themselves they worshipped the work of their hands instead of the true and living God and at Babel men plugged in their own substitutes for God God said scatter and populate the the world man said no let's stay right here together and let's make a name for ourselves and let's build a tower that will reach all the way up to heaven itself and so Babel or Babel represents rebellion and pride on the part of man and then Babylon itself the city itself was such an idolatrous place many of the idolatrous practices Of the ancient world and the Old Testament world can be tied directly in with Babylon in some way or another. Now folks, there's a principle here that we need to understand. And the principle is this. Religion can be so attractive, so seductive and yet so deadly. I want you to think about religion with me a moment. Man's desire is to try his own hand at religion his way. He rebels against God's word and tries to establish his own path and yet satisfy himself that he is somehow or another right with God and that he's being religious. You see, religion is man's substitute for what God requires. Now, it may be interesting uh, for you to note that God has always been against religion. God has always been against religion. You see, all the way back in Jeremiah chapter 7, he said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I want you to go and stand at the gate of the temple and I want you to say thus and such to my people. You say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, we are justified in doing everything that we are doing. And he says, do you not see that you have made my house nothing more than a den of robbers? A den of robbers was a hideout between jobs that they would pull. Robbers pull a job and they meet up together at a den and they count out all the loot And they plan their next excursion, their next robbery, a den of robbers And God said through Jeremiah, that's what you have turned my house into It is nothing more than a den of robbers where you plan what you're going to do next You go out and do whatever you want to do in your life. You live your life according to your desires. You rob from God that which God deserves and that is your heart and your soul. You rob from God and then you come to the temple to pay him a little bit of lip service saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord and then you go out of here just to run about and live your life your own way again the next week. And he said it's a dinner." robbers God said I hate it Jeremiah tell my people that I want them to amend their ways I want them to repent I want them to live out their faith in their daily life, so that what they say in my house becomes a reality in their lives. But religion, in and of itself, if it's divorced from the rest of the life, God, uh, from rest of life, God says, I hate that. Even in the end of times, 2 Timothy 3 says in the end of times, people are going to be religious. They're going to have this form, this shell of religion, but they will deny the power thereof. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, there will be people that come up to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we even go about and preach in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Folks, people of all ages, of all cultures, have been seduced by this scarlet harlot who promises life but delivers nothing other than death. And even at the end of time after the church is removed and then God begins pouring out his tribulation judgments on the earth, men are going to be religious still. There's not going to be a shortage of religion on the face of the earth. And if you know scripture at all and know anything about church history, it is religious men who have their hands stained with the blood of the saints. It's by and large not atheistic men. It's religious men whose hands are stained with the blood of the saints. Who was it that killed the prophets? Who was it that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus said to the Pharisees on one occasion, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look so pretty on the outside, you're so decorated up and dressed so nicely on the outside and you're so religious on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones on the inside. They were religious, but dead. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, who killed the people who were trying to carry the church back to authentic worship? Was it the pagan men? No, it was churchmen Read some about Anabaptist history as well Your ancestors in the faith There were the magisterial reformers People like Calvin and Luther Who wanted to continue to work within the structures to reform the church And then there were the radical reformers The Anabaptists Who insisted on a regenerate church That the church ought to be made up of the redeemed. And that people after they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Needed to be baptized according to the New Testament. As a testimony of their faith. And so they rejected infant baptism. So that means nothing. And so what did the churchmen do? They said okay you want to be baptized we'll baptize you. And so they would time up. Hands and feet, they would bind them up and they'd put weights on them and they'd carry them out into boats and they'd dump them over in lakes. They'd say, we'll baptize you, we'll permanently baptize you. Again, who did that to Anabaptist? It was churchmen. And then I think of John Bunyan, that book he wrote, Pilgrim's Progress, one of the classics in the Christian faith. I hope you've read that that allegory of the Christian life that book affected uh, Charles Spurgeon in such a tremendous way John Bunyan, you see the Anglican church had become the state church And they said, oh, if anybody's going to worship It's going to be according to the state church, according to our guidelines John Bunyan said, man, anywhere I see people gathered I'm going to preach the word And they said, no you're not He said, yeah I am He preached the word They threw him into prison because it wasn't a part of the state church again it wasn't unbelie- it wasn't professing unbelievers who did this to christians it was politicians and churchmen who professed to know god and yet they had on their hands the blood of the saints And so this harlot, whatever age she is trodden through, she looks good but she brings death and she has the blood of the saints on her hands. But God will have the final say as we see here in chapter 17. Now secondly, I want you to notice with me the monster of Babylon representing the Antichrist who uses religion to his benefit. Look at verse 7 John says But the angel said to me Why do you marvel I will tell you the mystery of the woman And of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her Here's a monster a beast that carries the woman Now that's interesting isn't it The woman rides on the beast The beast supports her, but she's in the driver's seat, so to speak. Now here, I believe, is a picture of the religion during the time of the tribulation. Just go home and reread the book of Daniel, for instance. When the Antichrist comes to power, there's going to be religion. There's going to be a unique uniting together of religious and political powers. The Antichrist is going to have his state religion. His state church. And throughout different periods of history and in different nations, the state and the church have been married together with disastrous results. Basically what happens is that the state uses the church to advance its own agenda and begins to try to control what can and cannot be preached. That's going to be the tactic of the Antichrist. This beast has seven heads and ten horns. We met him back in chapter 13. Back there we saw the beast had a fatal blow to his head but it was healed. That ties in with verse 8 here. Now, folks, what are we to make of all this? We're told in verse 9 that the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Obviously, that makes us think of Rome. Rome was a city built on seven hills, but we're told further what these seven mountains are. There's seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he will remain only a little while. Now sometimes mountains in the scripture stand for kings and kingdoms What's being communicated here is an outline of the major world powers that we see in the Bible By John's day five of them had fallen Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece and Medo-Persia All of those major powers known to the biblical world were history by John's day And then he says one is Now that would have been Rome In John's day they were in power Now all of those kingdoms had the scarlet harlot riding on them those kingdoms of the world were filled with false religion every single one of them and he says one has not yet come that will be the kingdom of the antichrist and when he comes he'll only be in power for a short period of time but guess what during his reign false faith will be present He's even going to sign a covenant with Israel and in the middle of Daniel's 70th week he breaks that treaty, he goes into the temple he sets himself up as a god to be worshipped that's the abomination that causes desolation that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24 and so the scarlet harlot rides again she's been riding all the way down through human history she rides during all these world powers and kingdoms Verse 11 John says The beast which was and is not Is himself also an eighth And is one of the seven And he goes to destruction The Roman Empire appeared to be dead But it's going to be revived again The Antichrist is going to be a part of that And so you have the revived Roman Empire You have the Antichrist as a part of that It's seven But with the breakdown it's eight Since the Antichrist and his rule Is part of that empire But again his rule is overall A part of the seventh. The seventh being the revived Roman Empire. Are you confused? Well the ten horns are ten kings. Not one of them... Is his own power and his own right, but they all have authority as kings and they receive authority with the beast for one hour. Their rule, the rule of the Antichrist, is short lived, and these kings have one purpose they give their power to the beast, the Antichrist. And so here are 10 kings or rulers. All of them have power but not ultimate power over the others But there is one who is clearly in charge over all the others He's the unmistakable ruler And he's a monster Now folks, what does this monster of Babylon, this political power do? He does two things and they appear not to be in chronological order. In verses 15 and 16, the Antichrist and his forces will turn against the scarlet harlot. They'll turn against this false religion that they supported and propagated. And then in verse 14, they assemble themselves to battle. They wage war against the Lamb. This is the battle of Armageddon. And we'll see in chapter 19 that the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, wins and he establishes his eternal reign. But again, before that happens, false religion along with the Antichrist and his political forces will turn against those who have come to true faith in Jesus during the tribulation. And then the Antichrist will also turn against the very religion that he once tried to use for his own purposes. Now, even though chapter 17 addresses the fall of false faith, there's some things you and I need to understand right now that makes all of this so applicable. To our life right now You see you read this chapter And you say preacher What in the world does this have to do with my life right now That's probably why Unless we were preaching through the book of Revelation You wouldn't really preach on this passage I mean have you ever heard anybody preach on Revelation 17 Probably not On the surface What does it have to do with you and me today Folks it has everything to do with you and me today Lesson number one, this world has no problem with religion. The world is religious. What does the world say? The world says there are many different ways to God. Just pick your way and be sincere. Have you ever heard that before? Sure you have. They would describe it like this, that God is sitting atop a mountain and going up a mountain. There are many different paths on all different sides of the mountain that you can take to go up. And the world would say all of those paths ultimately lead to the top where God is. Just pick your path and let the next man next to you pick his path. Live and let live. You don't need to tell anybody else about your faith in Christ. Well, that would be hateful and intolerant. You mean you're trying to say your path is the only way? You remember about 10 years ago the wrath of the press and the wrath of the world that Southern Baptists incurred? When Southern Baptists put out pamphlets of how Christians can pray for Muslims and witness for Muslims, that Muslims could come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved, what did the press say? The press said, who are these Southern Baptists? Who do they think they are? You mean they're implying that Christians are saved? and Muslims aren't how dare they say something like that that's the world's view of religion that's the world's view the world says just live and let live but folks what's at stake here is truth Either you accept the scripture as the truth of God or you don't If you do then you must agree that religion in and of itself is condemning In fact all roads do not lead to God In fact all of them but one leads straight to hell You say preacher how narrow Jesus said narrow is the way He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, as C.S. Lewis said. I choose to believe he's Lord, and he meant what he said. Second truth, being religious and being born again are not the same. Even in the Christian church, we can be enamored with ritual and liturgy and we can miss Jesus. We can get so caught up in form that we miss the essence of what all that we do is about. Folks, just think with me a minute about the book of Romans. What does Paul say in the book of Romans? Paul talks about religion and and had God wanted to make a law or a religion that people could be justified through, he could have surely done that. But he says there isn't a law. In fact, the law is only given as a mirror so that you and I can see our sin that we've not kept the law and we in response will throw ourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ and be saved. Romans 3 says there's none righteous, no, not one, none who seeks after God. It's not religion, it's faith in Jesus. Jesus said to Nicodemus, a religious man, one of the leaders in Israel, One of the spiritual guides, one of the spiritual leaders. He said, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, born from above, born of the Spirit, he will not see the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again. The Holy Spirit does His miracle on your heart, His miracle of regeneration, drawing you and me to faith in Jesus Christ. He takes that veil off of our eyes and we see the glory of God in Christ and we're born again, we're reconciled with God, we have peace with God and our lives are changed. It's a new birth, a spiritual birth. That's what it means to be a Christian It's not about religion It's about a relationship All the difference in the world Between religion and relationship Are you religious Or are you born again this morning If you're just religious You're lost You need Jesus Third and last truth, know that the day is coming when you will not be free in your faith without consequence. Understand the dangers involved when the governments of the world want to control the church. Folks, there are nations all over this globe where there is a sanctioned church and a sanctioned message. The government regulates who can do and say what and it watches everything that happens. That's what they live under in China, for example. These nations are not truly free. There seems to be a trend afoot in America right now To begin chipping away at religious liberty The freedom of religion that's been a very important part of our culture For close to 300 years And folks on this Memorial Day weekend When we celebrate those who have fought to give us these freedoms We need to remember that Let's not forget the sacrifices they made Because the battles they fought Truly do matter There are voices today That want to promote that you and I can have The freedom of worship but not the freedom Of religion There's a big difference Freedom of worship means you're free to do Whatever you want to do inside the walls Of this church But just keep it here Freedom of religion, on the other hand, includes freedom of worship but goes beyond that. Freedom of religion says you're free to worship inside the walls of the church but you're also free to carry the message out onto the streets of America. It's religious liberty that we want, not simply freedom of worship. Even as we speak this morning Southern Baptist colleges and universities Have joined up with Roman Catholic schools and hospitals In a lawsuit against the government I don't know if you've been reading about it in the press It's been there I think it's up to about 40 or 50 different institutions That have joined together in this lawsuit The government says you must Regardless of your religious beliefs and convictions Provide for what we say That you must must provide for in health care if you're a Southern Baptist school or a Catholic school you must provide abortion coverage for your employees regardless of what your religious convictions are and so Southern Baptists along with Catholics are about to be in court against the government it's a religious liberty issue Many are also saying right now and it remains to be seen where it's going to land down The government is going to force the issue that we must broaden our definition of marriage If two men want to stand at this altar in this church and be wed together And we deny them that opportunity Then we're going to be subject to some type of legal action That day might be coming And where that will land and what type of fight it will be Obviously it's too early to say Last month in Baptist Press Lawyers, not preachers, lawyers said Churches who believe the Bible better go ahead And add a new article in their constitution saying that we as a body of believers affirm the biblical definition of marriage in Genesis 2 and in the Gospels being between a man and a woman. And lawyers are saying, again, not preachers or denominational leaders, lawyers are saying churches better get that in their constitution right now. You'll be getting a letter on that soon. Folks let's remember today that all of this matters All of the world's systems are going to come crashing down one day The Lord is coming back with a people and for a people Who are prepared to meet Him Which side will you be on? Which side will you be on? Would you stand place? This morning, you might need Christ in your life. Maybe you'd say, you know, Pastor, I'm religious, but I need to be born again. Can you pray with me about that? Talk with me about that. There are those this morning that can pray with you about that. Talk with you about that. Take you out of the sanctuary into a side room. Talk further with you about that if that's what you need. If You need a church home. We'd like to be your church home. Maybe this Memorial Day, you just want to come and and bow at this altar and say, God, I lift up this nation. We need you. And Lord, help us not to forget these battles that truly matter. Help us to remember.